Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church, growing in faith and friendship. We're going to start with a reading from the letter to the Hebrews, and I'm going to read the beginning of the passage twice after the middle passage, if you understand what I'm talking about. The writer says, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now Catherine's going to come up and Adrian too, and we're going to sing Jesus. What a beautiful name. Jesus. 
beautiful name Son of God, Son of Man Lamb that was slain Joy and peace, strength and hope Grace that blows all fear time uh, that I have the opportunity to preach here, I've been speaking about Luke's gospel and about the role of the excluded people, the outsiders in Luke's gospel, the poor. And we started several weeks ago with Mary, the first and the most revolutionary words in the whole gospel are entrusted to a woman. And we know that women still have a long way to go in the world before equality is even on the radar in many places. And yet, in Luke's Gospel, it is Mary who sets out the manifesto, if you like, for this Gospel. That the poor are filled with good things while the rich are sent away empty. And then a little later on, I told you about a conference that I'd been to about aging and about end-of-life issues. I pointed out that the aged are often today excluded and outsiders, sometimes even in church life. And that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads the spirit-filled Simeon and Anna, aged people, to the temple where they see Jesus. 
And I shared a remarkable image that came from that conference that I attended of Jesus perhaps replacing the child in the midst of the disciples with an aged person. The key words in that sermon were fulfillment, reconciliation, resolution, the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ. Now today, as a bridge between the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel, which are very oldie-worldy in the language that's used and the ideas that are used, Old Testament ideas largely, as a bridge between that beginning of the Gospel and the Gospel proper with its parade of outsiders and excluded people, is the genealogy. Now, if there's one bit in the Bible that most of us have a tendency to skip over and not to read, it's any of the many lists of names. And if you're a critical reader of the genealogies from Matthew and Luke, there are two genealogies of Jesus that are given Uh, They are confusing. They're not the same. From David to Joseph. And the scholars argue about it. And to be honest, what they say is often unconvincing, trying to resolve these genealogies. And there's not much meat in it, if you see what I mean. Actually, having recently become a vegetarian, then there's not much broccoli. (laughs) But there are at least two key points to be made about the genealogies. First of all, that Matthew is actually the better genealogy for the emphasis that I'm bringing from Luke's Gospel. Luke, after all, is the Gospel for the outcast, for the excluded, and for the woman. But it's Matthew and not Luke who actually includes in the genealogy the names of four women. Amongst all of the men, he includes the names of four women, each of whom, for one reason or another, was an outcast. Tamar, who had been raped, of course, by her brother in the book of Genesis. Rahab, the prostitute who welcomed the spies into the city of Jericho. Bathsheba, with whom David committed adultery and who was to become the mother of of Solomon. And then Ruth, the Moabite woman who became an ancestor of David. But the most obvious and the most important point to be drawn from the genealogies is just this. That Jesus, as we've just been singing in this song is not only the son of God, but also the son of man. That Jesus is human. That he has, just as you do, a list of ancestors. He's not a Greek God. He's not an emanation of spirit, but is at the end of a genealogy. Obviously, we concentrate and we rightly do this on the role of the Spirit 
in the virginal conception of Jesus because it's quite extraordinary. But we also need to stress the ordinariness, the humanity of Jesus, his likeness to us, Son of God, Son of Man. And Luke does this by uh, continuing the genealogy, which actually stops with Abraham in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Luke continues the genealogy as far as Adam to show that Jesus is one of us. So taken as a whole, those two, two genealogies, we might not get very much light on how they harmonize in Matthew and Luke, but taken together, the two genealogies teach us that Jesus is like us, like you, whoever you are, as an outcast or as a human being. And most of us fit into one of those categories. I want to talk a little bit about William Barclay now. Uh, some of the older ones amongst you may remember William Barclay. We just lost uh, Billy Graham this week. And Billy Graham was, of course, probably one of the most well-known Christians in the world and probably one of the most well-known Christians in Britain. But if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, uh, William Barclay also was a very well-known Christian, uh, certainly in Britain. And Barclay was often on television and radio, and Barclay wrote a series of best-selling Christian books. Uh, that was back in the day when Christians still read books. And Barclay was, of course, uh, by his job, uh, an academic. He was an academic in the University of Glasgow, a New Testament scholar, very busy man. And you may wonder how he managed to write all of those books. Well, he was profoundly deaf. And uh, if he was in a boring meeting, he didn't have any hesitation to switch off his hearing aids and uh, <laughs> do some writing. Or between lectures, he'd rush up into the office, turn the hearing aids off, and write some of the latest uh, bestseller. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, another famous Christian from way back when, said that Barclay was the most dangerous man in Christendom. Um, quite an exaggeration, I think. Now, he said that because Barclay didn't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And Barclay was what we call a universalist. Uh, he believed that everybody would ultimately be saved. But we don't read Barclay for that. The reason that we read Barclay is firstly because he's very, very close to the text of the New Testament. And he can bring out the meaning of a word from the Greek of the New Testament with absolutely incomparable vividness. And the other reason that we read him is because of his fabulous application of what he writes to everyday life, which is what, of course, we all need to family life, to work, to leisure, to aging, to youth, to marriage, to singleness. 
And Barclay, of course, wrote uh, the Daily Study Bible, where he takes a Bible passage and he talks about it and then applies it to us. Now, Barclay, when he comes to talk about the genealogy in Luke's Gospel, has actually quite some speculative material, but the points are very well made, and so I share them with you this morning. First of all, he notices something you might have not noticed when you were reading through the Gospel, that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30. Why does he do that? Surely if you're the saviour of the world, aren't you eager to get on with the task? I well remember when Catherine and I were getting ready to go up to London to study for the Baptist ministry. I was about 25 or 26. And I said to somebody who came to preach in our church in Abitillary, oh, it's just terrible, we've got to go and study in London. I'll be 30 by the time I get out. And the chap said, it's a very good age in the Bible. 30's a very good age in the Bible. Well, Barclay starts with this assumption that Joseph died young and that Jesus had to support the family. Actually, the impression we get from the Gospels is that Mary was a single mother. Uh, We gather this because Jesus is often taunted, isn't he, in the Gospels with the taunt and taint of illegitimacy. Uh, We know from the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters who were younger than him. There's evidence for the fact that Jesus, as the eldest, would have possibly been uh, asked to support the family. He's referred to in Mark's Gospel as the tecton, which we tend to translate as carpenter, but which has actually a broader meaning. Uh, We get the word technician from it. Uh, Obviously, there's no such thing as technology in those days, but uh, as a carpenter, as a workman, as a builder, as a handyman, as someone good with his hands, Jesus was known as the tecton. So it's a reasonable assumption that Jesus had to support his family. Now, many of us who want to serve God, and I put that in inverted commas, because everything that we do is service to God. But many of us who want to serve God in a more elite way, if you like, go off with the Baptist Missionary Society or serve God in the inner city, perhaps, Many of us uh, in that place have had to struggle to understand that actually family obligations are part of that. Uh, I well remember that when Catherine and I did 
uh, apply and were accepted to go to France with the Baptist Missionary Society. Uh, many of the people from uh, the church where I'd grown up said, well, what about your folks? What about Alf and Ruth, your parents? Well, and I was able to say to them, what, you make us collect for a missionary organization throughout our childhood? And then you were surprised that we go as missionaries? Arrogant and proud, you see. 30, 30 years of age. But, of course, they were right. Because family obligations do come into it. And there are aspects of those years serving God, which I regret very profoundly. We all want to save the world. But Jesus tells us that someone who can do small things well can be trusted to do big things well. Well done, says Jesus in his parable, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now we've got a thing in the Baptist denomination called the Ministerial Recognition Committee. And if you want to go into training for ministry in any way, you need to go before the Ministerial Recognition Committee. And in, back in my day, they questioned you about your theology and about your Bible knowledge and your prayer life. Well, that's all very well. But if I was on that committee, I'd be asking about family. I'd say, were you on the work party last Sunday? Have you ever taught Sunday school? Are you active, actively known as a Christian in the workplace? Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of a young person trying to tell you how you should lead your life. Perhaps from the pulpit. Not here, necessarily. But a young person telling you how you ought to be living your life. I remind you of some words by Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Now Jesus is not only the savior of the world, although he is that, Jesus is also the teacher of the world. The teacher of the world. And to be the teacher of the world, you need experience. And you need credibility. And once again, what Barclay, William Barclay has to say about this, just astounds me with its depth 
of insight. And it touches me right where I am. When he talks about how Jesus may have gained his experience and his credibility. Barclay talks about, and this is a quote, Barclay talks about the haunting insecurity, the haunting insecurity of the life of the self-employed craftsman. The haunting insecurity of the life of the self-employed craftsman. Will there be enough work? Or will people go to the competitor? Sometimes a member of the family will fall ill. And you need to stay at home to look after that family member. You don't get paid that day. Or, not that this is likely to occur that much in the Holy Land, there might be a snowfall. Two or three days, you can't get out to work. Most customers greet you with a cheery smile. But there are bad-tempered customers. And there are some customers who won't pay up and who mysteriously absent the day when they have to pay their bills. This is one I love particularly. When you're self-employed, I I speak actually as someone who's self-employed at the moment. When you're self-employed, sometimes you want to help somebody you can't pay. And very occasionally, sometimes, don't, don't all come to me afterwards, but sometimes, yes, I'll offer my services to people who can't pay. So does that mean that you do inferior work for them? Of course it doesn't. Because you're a craftsman. You have pride in your work. And so you do first-class work for people who can't pay. I love paying taxes. It's a privilege. No, I seriously do. I'm not joking. It's a privilege. It's one of the greatest privileges of belonging to a society like ours to be able to support it by paying taxes. You know, when you're doing your books, there's the temptation just to under-declare. Because nobody's going to find out. Nobody's going to investigate somebody at the bottom of the pile when they could be going after tax tax exiles abroad, are they? Obviously not. They're going to spend all of their energy on uh, on those who have their money stashed abroad, aren't they? Obviously. No comment. But Jesus must have been tempted because we are told in the letter to the Hebrews that he was tempted in every way just as we are. He must have been tempted to get away with what he could get away with. Especially if he could find his taxes in the mouth of a fish. And here's a little detail that Barclay gives us that you won't have found from the New Testament. 
There was a place called Tiberius. Uh, we heard about the sea of Tiberius, of course, in the New Testament, but we don't hear about the city of Tiberius because Jesus never went to the city of Tiberius. And yet we know from other history, from archaeology, that there were immense public works being done at Tiberius during the time that Jesus was growing up and before he turned 30. Enormous public works, you know, making Morrisons look like, uh, look like a pound shop or something. Now, what do you do when you find out that the person doing those works is King Herod? As it was. It's dirty money, folks. What do you do with dirty money? There's no record of Jesus ever visiting Tiberius. Now much of this in Barclay is speculation. But I suggest that it is speculation in the right direction. For this reason, that any way that you and I can come to understand that Jesus is on our side as we struggle is helpful. Any way that you can come to understand that Jesus is one of us, son of God, son of man, is helpful. Barclay says, it is the glory of the incarnation that we face no problem of life and living, which Jesus also did not face. And what I like to think is that if we find in the Gospel of Luke a record of Jesus caring for the outcast, caring for the excluded, caring for those who are in a precarious position, and we do, then these must have been the years that he discovered that. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a beautiful name. Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb that was slain. Lord, as we imagine what it was like for you to give up your majesty in Christ and to live amongst us as one of us, then our imagination boggles. We have the greatest of difficulties. We have all kinds of fantasy versions of a Jesus untouched by human weakness. But Lord, we are so wrong. The letter to the Hebrews tells us, as we heard, that Jesus was tempted in all ways, as we are, yet was without sin. 
and that we don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is able to sympathize with us in our exclusion, in our fragility, in our precarity. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.